that Tom Gleason kind of blew your minds because he just gave us a very big chunk of comedy here at Newport. But could we get just a moment, just a shh? All right, so here we are. Ladies and gentlemen, those of you who have uh, stuck around this evening, this is part of an ongoing and building movement, otherwise known as the Television Podcast, here at the Newport Comedy Room. Welcome, everybody. Give yourselves a big round of applause for being here. You either have babysitters or you're just not very good parents. Um, Shit parents. And you know what? I raise a glass to that because... Isn't it just the biggest guilt cocktail? The things that we are supposed to do for our children. Awesome. Because you might not know it yet, you might be too young to remember, but we are actually in the presence of greatness. They may scoff. No, no, not really, because I'm about to tell you a few things. First of all, back in the 80s, comedy really was a very special place in the hearts and minds of Melburnians. There was probably not a better place to be as an audience to see some of the finest comedy operating in Australia and if not the world. And yet, as Australians, you still kind of had to take off overseas to Edinburgh and similar climbs to make your presence felt and to earn the reputation that meant that you could come back to Australia and get gigs again. Will you please make welcome to the stage Steve Kearney and Neil Gladwin of the extraordinary Los Trios Ring Barkas. Now, it has been some time since the two of them have performed live on stage, but their comedy was otherwise kind of known as um, kind of uh, collaborate, or, or, you, or there was a better word for it. So, what, how would you describe your work? Antitainment. Antitainment. Yeah, That's well, exactly right. We we grew up in the in the moment of punk. In many ways, we were punk comedians, but we weren't dressed with mohawks or anything like that. We were two characters who stood on stage in the world's worst tuxedo, and we attempted to be the world's worst act, uh, quite Which deliberately. We yeah. It was punk comedy, and again, like we're sort of living in an era where punk is kind of a cute anachronism to mm. some extent. But what a, what a gutsy thing to do. So let me just kind of paint the picture. Uh, so at the time, there was the Ruston campus, yep. which was an opportunity for students who really needed to express themselves. And there weren't many places to go to study, were there? No, there was only probably NIDA and, and Ruston, and that was before VCA. That's right, Acting and, Walker, kicked and off. so forth. Yeah. And, and, and NIDA was a very hard place to get into, but Ruston was this kind of little crucible of really interesting people that produced people like Gene Kitson and Brian Nan Curvis and Peter Rosethorn, and you were there at the same time. Well, the great thing about the place was that it trained you to, to um, be able to walk into a place and not only know how, how to run a workshop with a group of kids, but you could actually know how to light, light the room, how to run a lighting board, how to put together a, a sound system, how to direct, how to design sets. They gave you just the full um, gamut of it. Well, and, it was a Whitlam years films. too, yeah. so, so everything was free. Mm. And we well, could make it, movies. It was. It was the Whitlam era and, and education was encouraged. And sure, you could do all of that, but, but Neil, more than that, it was actually a place where people congregated to really kind of create an, an original spectrum in terms of performance. And so, the, and there's been nothing like it ever since. So, so how did you two meet? What, what was the kind of initial 
kind of common place that you found? We had a mutual friend who was um, uh, had written a show and was putting it on at, at the, the theatre at, at Ruston College and Steve said, oh, let's do some lunchtime promotion. And he said, why don't you bring along your piano accordion and I'll bring along my drum. And I said, I haven't played piano accordion in eight years. It'll be really bad. And he said, great. And yeah, I just saw Neil do a performance with a, a girl dancing around him, wrapping, wrapping him in um, tinsel. And it was performance be, art. Performance yes. art. Yeah, we're doing all doing a lot of performance art. People were banging themselves to crucifixes and staying up there for twenty hours. It was it was a fun time in the seventies. I, I stayed home in bed for three weeks. Mm. Yeah, you know, as a statement. Mm. And ostensibly, you were training to be teachers. Uh, well, it was a sort of mixed course. Well, it was a, yeah, it was a Bachelor of Education course. We didn't see a student for three years of that course. Then basically in your fourth year, they, they said, OK, well, you can either write, before you graduate, you have to write a, a year of drama teaching course, or you could write an essay of why you don't want to teach. No, it was a wonderful we time took the to be latter. A, yeah, so, well, yeah. it was a great time to be a student. You actually had time to flex your muscles, experiment, fail, you know, you mm. could fail and then keep going. It, it wasn't the sort of incredibly uptight and intense era that we live in now where it's actually unfortunately very expensive for students to study so they kind of need to get it right the first time. So the, so it was also a, a great crucible where a, a great number of incredible talents that are now household names sort of found their, their common ground and found their, 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 um, their stamping grounds, I suppose. And, but, but what you did these days, I think people would really struggle to accept, but it seemed to capture the hearts and minds of people at the time. And I guess I want to talk about it. Um, you, you sort of found your niche, you found a relationship, and then there was a, a, a men at work support that you did in, in what I love was the Marijuana House of Melbourne, which, um, what, you know, what, what a wonderful sort of place to spend time in these days, I suppose. <laughs> Yeah, Men at Work gave us our first gig, I think, on New Year's Eve. And how, did, how did that come about? And they, they were being, and the Wiggles were on first. As <laughs> no, they were. They were the cockroaches. They were. Yeah. Mm. Um, and perhaps you wish you might be the Wiggles now, but nevertheless, yes. who won that competition? <laughs> <laughs> so, so how, how did you? I mean, what conversations did you have between the two of you? Because you really had to trust each other to work on stage in in that environment. Well, we never really developed material by sitting down and typing anything. Um, it was, you know, going back to, you know, uh, was it Phil Silvers, who was one time the famous American comedian, was asked, how do, you be a, how do you be a comic? And he said, well, you get up on stage, say stuff, do stuff, the funny stuff you keep, the other stuff you throw away. And it kind of just went like that. Um, like some of our best material was Steve would just say to me, Oh, can you play blah, blah, blah on the accordion? And he said, I'm going to grab those chairs and juggle them. Yeah, and, um, yeah we did a show at Melbourne Uni. They were handing out joints to everybody, and um, that, which is what they used to do then. I don't know if they still do that. Um, and we, they had a whole bunch of chairs by the side of the stage. And um, I, t I told Neil, I said, yeah, just um, play some music and I'll stack these chairs up and um, I'll climb up on your on the top of his shoulders and uh, so I did that and I'm up there on top of his shoulder I'm standing on the top and I had nowhere to go but just do a giant pratfall on the front of the stage nearly killing myself but that's what you have to do 
So, and that, that became part of the show. That's how we built... We, we used to do five shows a night. Five shows a night. And so, but most of your methodology was about, as you say, entertainment and about not actually wanting to go on stage. And I guess I compare that to now when everything is, is really tried and true and you kind of need to test everything before you can manage it all and everything's spun and everything has a brand. But I, I guess what I love about that era is that nobody really knew what to expect and no, nobody really knew what to attach themselves to. Well, it was a big answer to, to Bert Newton and, and the networks and, you know, there was no, there was no young faces. Just hold There was no young faces on the telly <laughs> back then. And um, the, the un- really, as an Australian comic in in that area, unless you were working in the the, the clubs system, you couldn't get on TV. No, you, probably if you rest, got arrested, you get on TV. It was before the radio exploded yeah. as well, too. So everybody was just clambering in little clubs, telling each other jokes, and television networks wouldn't wa- want to commit to funding and development of Australian comedy television shows because it was cheaper to buy English or American shows. So. No, and we, we have our own set of ramifications now, which means that you either need a huge following on social media, you know, like a, kind of a massive brand representation and so on. So we, we, we kind of, we've won and lost in equal measures. But tonight was a great example of what is local comedy, local community, uh, and people really embracing that sensation. So back then, you... You kind of really pushed the boundaries of what was considered proper entertainment. Yes. You you were entertainers, and that must have been uh, like I often wonder. Just before you go on stage, even though we now know you're a huge success, you were one of the biggest successes on the Australian comedy scene at, in, for the era. Just before you went on stage, like what did you say to each other? Did you want to do it, or would you rather have gone? Do home you want to hear know what we used to say to each other Please. every time? Don't fuck up. <laughs> but which, which was just our little thing between each other. But then when we started to develop larger shows and we had we were touring the world with you know thirteen people and seven tons of set and puppeteers and all sorts of things, we'd turn to them and say, "Well, don't fuck up." And um, we, I you think know, we, we really didn't. We, we did, really didn't have jokes. We really didn't have a show, and the show could collapse at any moment if we didn't have that bond with the audience. So it was all about the tension between the crowd and us, and uh, we were pretty up for saying or doing anything. You know, we, uh, John Lennon, the day John Lennon got shot, you know, we were doing those jokes. And... Uh, we, were so, we would deliberately mix up jokes that, or tell jokes that had no punchlines or the wrong punchlines. So you, you would interpret daily events as they happened into the shows that you were doing? I, we, we, we weren't really like, a, you know, that kind of current affairs type... And we weren't stand-up. It was a very physical act. So, you know, we would try to do a, a bread roll juggling routine that neither of us can really juggle. Um, and then we would try to juggle with each other. And then, then it, of course, it just turned into a giant juggle stroke food fight with the audience. Um, food food was a big thing with us. And liquids, bananas, water, people milk. Would, people would throw glasses at us and we would spit on them as they spat on us. We, used was, to ha- we had one jug mutual. where we'd, mm. the one, one gag where we'd bring out a jug of water, like a beer jug, like that, and just say, someone come up on stage and we'll tip the jug of water on you. And we'd always get someone up on stage and we'd tip the jug of water on them. And uh, from then, anything could happen. Once, once I got, uh, once the guy smacked me in the head, 
burst my eardrum and I had to do the rest of the show with this giant ring in my ears. Um, and uh, another time, a guy tried to sell me uh, marijuana on stage. He was high. And he's running around and we're trying to, like, escape him. And he ran into the jug and the jug... Um, um, I hit him in the head with a jug, basically. <laughs> no, and, uh, it, it, uh, all the glass was everywhere on stage. So Neil took him to hospital, left me to do the rest of the show, came back in 45 minutes, and uh, everybody thought it was all part of the show. So. All part of the show. And these days, blood, of course, too. we're all fairly obsessed with OHS and insurance claims and yes, safety was none circles back then. and so on. Um, Okay, so in that maelstrom and in that milieu, you were able then to kind of formulate an event that took you to the Edinburgh Fringe Festival. Now, these days, lots of Australian emerging comedians go and do that, and half their luck. It's a massive event. It's become a huge commercial commodity. Mm. But at the time that you went there, it wasn't quite that yet. It was actually still really forming itself and finding itself. And they didn't really know about Australian comedians. Uh So what, and can you talk about that and also the, the relationship that you had with John Pinder, who for those of you who don't know, John Pinder was the man that really kicked off the Last Laugh Theatre Restaurant and Comedy Zoo mm. in Collingwood. And, and he really took you under his wing. And started and, the comedy festival. Yeah, yeah, he managed us and, yeah, and that was part of his yeah. stepping. Yeah. We, so yeah. we were doing a show at, at the Last Laugh um, and... Um, and um, yeah, John said, you, you know, you, you should go to Edinburgh and, and do, and we're like, what's that? You know, yeah. nobody'd heard of it. Um, so yeah, we went to Edinburgh. We were just performing our normal kind of act there. And um, yeah, one day we get a, a notification under the door that we're on the shortlist for the Perry Award. And you know, we said, well, what's that? And just kept going. And um, apparently Perrier didn't want to give it to us um, because they had bu- wanted to build this very clean brand mm. and here were two grungy Australians who threw bananas at the audience. And um, uh, But um, the judges decided if they didn't give it to us, they were going to walk out. So, um, so and the, we- ju- the judges were a whole bunch of people from the comic strip. Yes, and, and that's interesting. So, again, just to sort of cast your mind back, there was an era of comedy that managed to filter into the Australian uh, ABC through the BBC, mm. and it included the comic strip and uh, Alexi Sales' work and French and Saunders' work and the not, not, not the 9 o'clock news team, of course, uh, Reese Griff-Jones and um, Mel Smith and Pamela Stevenson and so forth. And that was kind of blowing the minds of Australians under the age of 25 in a way that their parents just really couldn't relate to. But it was filtering through and you were approached by a lot of those producers to work with them at the time. Yeah, well, we met, uh, again, John Pinner had, well, he started the Melbourne Comedy Festival at the Last Laugh in, in 82, brought out the comics and a lot of the members of the comic strip. And the comic strip was basically a group of fringe comedians in London who took over a strip club uh, in Soho and called it the comic strip mm. um, uh, as you were saying and uh, yeah we got to meet them at that time and I, I, pl- I played in their band downstairs and then late at night we go upstairs we'd do the show then they'd watch us um, they actually wrote the first series the first series of the, um, the young ones in Australia on their Australian tour 
And then by the time we went to Edinburgh the next year, they were famous and judges at the Edinburgh Festival. So that's how we got seen. There was about 1,500 shows on, smaller than it is now, but still quite enormous. Well, the, and Alexi Sale is quite well documented in, uh, in, in that era of time. He wasn't actually... Well, he wasn't actually a, a, um, a cast member of um, The Young Ones, but he was very instrumental. Yeah, in he was in the comic strip. Yeah, yeah that's right. Mm. Uh, and the whole thing was very intertwined. And it was actually really a collective of less than 20 people that really shifted the whole zeitgeist of comedy at the time and, and took it from that sort of um, uh, vaudevillian style mm. of relatively kind of white egalitarian comedy or working class comedy I suppose mm. into something that really kind of pushed the boundaries and, and changed the way people understood what, what, what comedy was and you were sort of part of that right even though it sounds like you were mm. completely naive to the whole experience <laughs> uh, well we saw it, there was a direct parallel about what was happening in London with what was happening in Melbourne and perhaps it was actually more advanced in Melbourne uh, with, the, with the cultural feeding in of the Pram Factory and Circus Oz Mm-hmm. Flying Trapeze um, Cafe, which was also one of John Pinder's venues. Um, there was a, the theatre restaurant scene and the cabaret scene was was prolific in, in the, the material that was being produced. Yeah, and that's uh, something that wasn't going on in London. No, and time. it was actually only happening here in Melbourne. Mm. There was there was some little sparks happening in Sydney. Mm. There was nothing happening anywhere else in this country, but it really was very fundamental. And I'm, I'm really interested in that because... I think it's a com- comedy is only a combination of the relationship between the talent on stage and, and the mm. audience's appreciation of it. And tonight was a great example of that. Tom Gleeson, everybody knows who he is now and everybody appreciated who he is now and what he's achieved. But really, you know, he took a long time to get to the place that yeah. he's... No one will know him in 20 years. No, they? they probably won't. But that, you know, his, yeah. his routine tonight was really uh, only as good as the audience appreciation of what was going on. Mm. And so with your work, you took some extraordinary risks because what you did well, wasn't, we didn't see wasn't it as user-friendly. Risks. We didn't see it as risks because there, there was nothing else. It, it was the 70s. You know, that's yeah. what we got out of the 70s. There was nothing here. So you had to We push barely had colour TV. Yeah, that's true. I suppose if you wanted to be anything, you had to push past we, the boundary. We, we had to. We wanted to. We, we were reacting to television, um, and just trying to c- crack jokes, really, and do our own thing. So you had the I moon mean, landing, the death of Kennedy, uh, the sacking of Gough Whitlam, um, Bugs and Graham Bunny. Kennedy in Melbourne tonight, and yeah. Bugs Bunny, and yeah. Bugs Bunny, <laughs> mm. and maybe the Flintstones. We, we found ourselves in Europe, also, you know, on tour and being thrust into these European cultures of, of clowning and comedians and like we would play the Viennese Clown Festival or something like that and people would talk to us about Italian clowning theories and techniques no and about Lazis no. and things and we would go, what? No. Oh no, that's like when Elmer uh, uh, puts a shotgun in the hole and pulls it out and in and out, in and out. Yeah, it's rabbit season, no, it's duck season. Yeah. Mm. Toilet, toilet, I mean, rabbit. performing then in London, you know, they, they would be saying things like, you know, where's your ball and chain, you know? Why don't you go back to the colonies? This is just, we're like, what are you saying? They used to keep saying to us, oh, I can see why you wanted to come to London because no one in Australia would understand that yeah, comedy, no would, would they? No. Okay, years later, Hung Lee, who had survived the Vietnam War and growing up in Australia as an Asian person in a fairly homophobic environment did a similar journey to you and he had a sort of a similar sort of response to the situation but it was a whole decade or so later 
And so when you were fathoming your way through, how did you sort of introduce yourselves to that milieu? Because even though they were also kind of, you know, pioneering their way through the circumstances, you were even sort of a, a lesser known factor and, and yet you somehow managed to thrive through there. Yeah, I mean, for me, I think once, once we'd uh, gone to England and won a prize and, and um, done live crosses back to Australia on Melbourne tonight and, you know, we kind of went from t- town to town, different countries and just expected to be the best act in town. And, 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 and we were for, for a short period of time. And, and I think we just had that, you know, you have to have that bravado to get on stage and, and, and do what weirdly was very self-deprecating comedy. Uh, but knowing that, you know, we could get these quite big laughs, I think, it was, I think that's just what drives a performer anyway. Yeah, the basis of it was live performance. As Steve said, we were re- reacting to the TV the TV didn't react to us until, you know, we went overseas. And then we won the Comedy Olympics, clearly. Yeah, you and, did. Uh, but our basis was, we calculated, we thought we might have played to about eight, 900,000 people live before we, we got onto TV. And we, we played yeah. just about every beer barn, like supporting a band called The Reels between Brisbane <laughs> and Adelaide. Mm. And it was, and we just thought after that yeah. tour we could we could yeah. play to and win any audience anywhere. So, all right, now someone as famous as Kylie Minogue has never really conquered the United States, not really. But you went over there and really invested yourself in that period of time in the in the mid, in the early eighties, and that must have been a pretty. Uh, kind of un- unnerving sensation for the both of you, I guess. Like, you must have been pretty well bonded by then. So how did you take that on? Right, Britain is one place. We are somehow connected mm. to Britain in our intellectual understanding and our relationship mm. with that Antipodean colonialism. But America, that's a whole other field. So what was that like for you? Well, we, we, we first went to New York. We, we, um, we met another performer, Eric Bogosian, in um, Edinburgh and we stayed at his place in New York and we scoped out the place and said we're going to come back next year. So we did a New York opening. and We, then were, we were built as new vaudevillians um, mm. in a particular venue which was an yeah. interesting thing and th- we were in a venue that uh, where Whoopi Goldberg got her first break. Yep. Um, so and and yeah, this new vaudevillian thing that they were doing was exactly what we were doing. So we kind of lucked out as being the top guys doing this new thing and you know suddenly you're on the front of the New York Times with this giant poster and a giant picture of yourself and 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 all these agents like these legendary Hollywood agents we had no idea who they were we had no idea what an agent was yeah the land of opportunity made itself known to us and then we ended up you know getting (laughs) agents and went to LA and fell into a three-picture deal with two studios and um, yeah, we did yep. two two shows in LA, and the studio execs came along, and they were you know ranting and raving, saying it's it's like Laurel and Hardy, but but it's not. It's Buster Keaton. It's going to be our secret weapon. And but but it it, it yeah. And, and we just, it's like you're on speed as well. And, and but we and, just kind of expected that. Did you so so you would, you would do your performance? You would meet with the meet the, 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 the presumably Ben. 
And then backstage, what did you say to each other? I mean, I think about Wham when they went and did their early shows and they were so loved and so lauded mm. and they had to catch the bus home yeah. uh, because even though they were incredibly famous, they still really didn't have any money and they didn't have any presents. Oh, we had no money in, in LA mm. at all. We were staying with our agent uh, and it was a very weird experience being in America for the first time. And he caught, we were staying there and he caught us, um, he came home one night and we were cooking him a dinner. And he said, what are you doing? He said, well, we're cooking, you know, we're, the food's not very good in America. And he goes, you're not supposed to use the kitchen. That's for decorative purposes only. And, you know, and we thought, wow, this is just a very weird place. And it, beco- and it became weirder and weirder. But um, the Americans uh, uh, liked us, but, you know, we kind of knew that the next day it all could be over and someone else would get off the plane. And mm. So just as quickly as one can land a deal there, one can lose a deal with a with the studio execs when, when they turn over because they've got about an average shelf life of one year in their jobs. So. Now, in the animal kingdom, animals will either adapt and exploit a space that no other animal has figured out, like a koala and gum leaves, which no other animal can eat because it's toxic fucking shit. Mm. But in your circumstances, did you strategize or did you just take what came and dealt with it as it, has, as it happened? Well, LA is like a, it's not so much about getting your foot in the door, it's how to hold the foot in the door as somebody smashes the door into your foot over and over and over again until it's at a bloody pulp. We, um, we, we, we just hmm. kept performing, excuse me, and we kind of lucked out. We, we ended up with um, the writer of Pee Wee's Big Adventure and the producer, Steve Martin's producer, and um, we, we'd go to an office every day for a year and this guy wrote a script, we wrote it with him and um, gave it to our agents and the six weeks later we get the, the notice back, no, the, the studio doesn't like it, it's no good. And then um, you start all over again. But kind of uh, a year later we get the script back that they'd read and it was the wrong script. It wasn't ours. So that's Hollywood. That's Hollywood. A bit crazy. So we, yeah, we had ups and downs, and then remember we had absolutely nothing left in the bank, and we went to our little ninety-nine seat theatre and said, um, and this fellow had sort of heard of us from Edinburgh, maybe, and he was willing to give us a go for a week, and but he needed a check, so we wrote him a a bum check that we knew was going to bounce. <laughs> To but pay, he, pay got, he got the reviewer along on the second night from the LA Times and it was probably the most flawless review we ever had and we were sold out for the next six months and um, he tore, thankfully he tore up the check. Mm. Yeah, and then, then you, the deals. Thank you. That's a, that's a, yeah, no, that deserves it, doesn't it? <laughs> so, because you can't hear this on the radio, what you've just said is that you know how hard it is to be paid to perform. And you're absolutely right. It is incredibly hard. You need a huge groundswell before people agree you're good enough. And tonight was a great example of that. I had to win a gold Logie to sell out Newport. <laughs> I mean, it's kind of embarrassing, isn't it? That happens all the time, doesn't it? <laughs> um, and so I would imagine, and I have young actor friends who are now sort of trying to kind of break through into that 
that, 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 that barrier that takes them into that pilot season and so on, and my heart goes out to them. Mm. But the, you, the two of you by now must have been great friends. You knew each other intrinsically. You're basically kind of creatively married. Um, and then you had to work out what you were going to do. And, Neil, you came home and, Steve, you stayed. Well, we came, we came back to do Garbo. Yep. And so Garbo was an Australian film, film. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. And um, kind of in pre-production of Garbo, uh, we, get a, we get a notice from Hollywood that the, the movies we've been working on, one of them has gotten up. Yep. It's going to be a $20 million film and Woo-hoo. blah, blah, blah. Woohoo! And we're like, yeah, we've got two movies. And then by Friday, the head of the studio was fired, and then we were fired, and then it was all over. And, and I think at that point, I, I was falling in love with Melbourne again. You know, the city I had rejected six years before that. Okay. I thought, oh my God, you, you can't actually see the air when you breathe it here. And so the re- the realization of what life in LA was. It was actually um, I can remember sitting at a Melbourne festival at about two a.m. in a festival club um, at a Melbourne festival and having just seen all these amazing work from all around the world and also the amazing local work all on the same presented platform. And I thought, this is an extraordinary place to live. And um, I didn't go to that place. So. <laughs> uh, Steve went back to LA yeah. and um, he probably, you know, back to, well, an illustrious career of performing and well, um, producing. And what did you think you were going to get by going back to the States at the time, Steve? What, what was that? What did you think you were going to get by going back to the States? <laughs> what a Louis job? I, uh, I, just, I, I was just living there, you know, that's where my partners were and um, I was living there. So I went back and just got into um, uh, television, did gigs on Friends and Ned you and Stacey. And Ned and Stacey, Mission Impossible. I did the Urkley, Urkel show. That guy, uh, all, uh, all sorts of... I didn't know that was you. Yeah. That wasn't me, that oh, right. was him. Okay. Um, no, you did? In Mission Impossible, Inspector Gadget? Uh, yeah, that, that was all a bit later. Yeah, just, just regular gigs. Um, and um, I got involved in sitcom development and ended up getting some sitcom deals. Uh, John Schwartzwelder from uh, The Simpsons was a writer and uh, we did a whole big TV show and the Schwartzwelder, the Simpsons writer was so... In demand, he he wanted everything um, to be uh, to be just like uh, the old TV show Guns Gunsmoke. So he made them hire anyone who was alive from the crew of Gunsmoke. Just more weirdness in Hollywood. Very very strange. And and I guess I mean from what I understand about anyone in the film industry, and we call them carnies is that you just sort of live and die on, on every opportunity that comes your way. Everything is yeah. potentially going to be big. And, and you have to sort of believe that, I guess, because you put so much of your heart and soul yeah. into it. Well, well like that, sh- that show with Schwarzwell, it was a, um, a Western. And it was, they spent like $3 million on it. Um, and then they, um, I, I had a look at the cut and everything. I said, it's horrible. Uh, <laughs> can you do this and this and this? And eventually, um, my manager said, oh, wait, pack your bags. Tomorrow morning, I'll give you a call at 9 o'clock. And if it's a good call, there'll be a limo downstairs, and you'll go to New York, and you'll do these things called the upfronts, and that you tell everybody what the networks tell, or the advertisers, what shows they've got. If it's not, then, um, you know, we'll keep 
soldiering on. So I get the call and I immediately know from his voice, you know, it's the bad call. And uh, so I did my washing. And, and what kept you going in that era? Uh, I, I mean, you, you've come back and just, just in case you're kind of wondering, you know, Steve's career recently has produced Oddball, the film that has, you know, just kind of completely, you know, blitzed its way through Australia mm. and international um, film fans and so forth and many other things besides. But what kept you going? I mean, you, you're now sort of, you know, happily married and you've got your whole mm. life here in Melbourne. But, I mean, that sort of stuff can really push you over the well, edge. Well, in, in Hollywood, I was always like, anything I couldn't put in my 65 Cadillac, I didn't want to own. Right. <laughs> so I could, you know, escape or, like, move and duck out of paying rent or duck and weave. And then when I got back, I had a son there. And then within four months, I left. And uh, I was such a relief just not having to be on all the time. And, and, and then, so, I think, you know, coming back and having kids. But it's the great dilemma of the Australian artist is that we're like lunar moths. You know, unless you go and make it elsewhere, you kind of don't seem to have any credibility here. And that's a great indictment on, on the Australian psyche. Because, to be honest, m- most people generally realise, after time, it's better to be here. We really are yeah. very lucky to live here. Yeah. And I guess the both of you sort of went and lived both those lives. And not every Australian comedian gets to do that. We, we've had some great examples of people who did. Mm. And, and the two of you really actually got some really significant options and, and opportunities to go and do that. And yet, still, despite how far you went... You would get that phone call that was just so bizarre and so weird and make you feel quite redundant very quickly that you kind of go, I just want to, I just want to go home. Yeah. I mean, I mean, you sort of scale the heights of that and yet eventually life is better back here. And, and Neil, while Steve was overseas, was that sort of like a creative divorce or, you know, did you go and sort of realise you had to fathom your own way here? Because... Um, whether you, or not you know, Neil went on to produce the uh, opening uh, event of the 2000 Olympics and the Paralympics and many other things besides. So you obviously had the props to do everything that you were doing, but the, 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 the reality of, of life in, in America kind of sort of sundered all of that, didn't it? Well, for me, yeah, it just, you know, when we, I suppose we was stopped going for that Hollywood um, Target. Um, it just opened up um, another field for me. I became a, I, I became more of a director and writer, and um, which was a kind of an extension of what you know we were doing together anyway. But it allowed me to explore artistic sides that I didn't, I couldn't flex that muscle with Los Trios. So I um, ran a, a company in in Adelaide and also in Sydney. Yeah. Um, yeah, I was a segment director on the um, para, um, on the Olympic um, closing ceremonies and and the Paralympic closing ceremonies. But um, well, then, yeah, but I, I think I worked out that I really enjoyed the rehearsal room and opening night, and so after that, I thought, well, that's just hard slog as a performer <laughs> to make every night look like it's the the first time you've done something and so yeah so I, I enjoyed making shows that those shows toured all around the world and and it's been fantastic so it's just opened up this another side yeah, yeah kind absolutely. of like Los Trios became you know a kind of a comedy prison because we were stuck 
in it. You know, we couldn't get out because there was a trajectory going on. And so we, 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 there was no room to do anything else creatively, which, which I don't think creatively in the end worked for us because, you know, in, in the end we, we, we kind of had to separate to go and do what we wanted to do. So, um, you know, unlike kind of Lano and Woodley, tremendous group, Neil's directed them before. I'm working with Frank now on a feature film, so. Well, I wanted to mention that because you went over and were the first ever Australian com- comedy act to win the Perrier Award, which is sort of the Oscars of the, of the Edinburgh Comedy Fringe. And it sounds like it sort of took you by surprise, but by, by, by doing so, you kind of created a template for other Australian comedians to understand uh, the merit and value and, and the, the, the heights that they could actually reach. And so, Lano and Woodley are a household name now, but they weren't then. And Neil, no. they approached you to direct that first show for them. Well, actually, I pitched a show to them when they were a three-man group. Yes, they were a three-man group. And we forget the third names? man, and yeah. I suspect he's still sitting at home going... Scott. <laughs> anyway, yeah, they, when they became a duo, I had an old idea that had been niggling me in the back of my head for about ten years before. Then I had an idea for Steve and I for a show, and so I pitched it to them, or an idea all around just a fence on stage and, and one gate, and that. Um, so I, I co-wrote that show with them and directed it, and they went to Edinburgh and won the Perry Award again. Because artistically, so, mm. you were their mm. predecessors to some degree, mm. and and I guess, and we love Lady and Woodley. We've been lucky enough to have Frank perform here. We 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 got our timing right with Frank. Uh, and really, you can sort of see the groundwork that you had laid for them because what you were doing was no one had ever done that before. Well, the, the irony is that when they won the second... Well, the, did they win two periods? No. I think one. one. Just the one. When they won the Perry Award, I was doing a solo show uh, that I'd worked up in uh, LA and, um, and done down here a bit um, called Planet K. And um, there were... My opening, there were two people in the audience, and one of them was Frank. Please tell me there were more than two people in the audience. No. <laughs> so a, even though you're the Perry, what you go back, is, Edinburgh is is not pretty. Yeah. No, I, I, I know when we were there, there were 900, 970 shows on, and the the rough calculation of the population that would be going to those shows was three per show so um, it's rough there's over 2,000 shows now yeah and your your odds are very much the same it's a sort of a crazy kind of um lemming like mentality that lots of performers have but it's about the credibility i guess of having performed at edinburgh as it is the credibility of performing at the melbourne international film festival uh comedy festival now so you were in this situation and you had to separate creatively to find yourself creatively and yet I guess what, what, still comes, what we still come back to is that that nucleus of your genius was that comedy double act. And then there was the 2003 return to the comedy festival. I, I, that kind of, I, I feel almost nervous even reading about that in, in my research, the prospect of going back because... <laughs> We'd all moved on as a generation. It yeah. had become a brand. There was a, a lot of spin around the festival. And, and so you kind of tried to go back into that space. And I don't know what happened then. What did happen? Oh, it was it was an interesting lesson. It was very bizarre doing something at... I can't remember how old we were. 
It was like a 20-year reunion or something. I mean, that was... But but (laughs) imagine going back and doing something that you created when you were 21. I don't know. Well, I have books I'm still trying to publish that I wrote 20 years ago, (laughs) so yeah. Well, yeah, as you say, there wasn't much in the show. It was all about eye movements and timing. And we had to watch as many old tapes as we could in rehearsal. So you did that and then I did that and I looked there and you looked there. It was well, exhausting. What was behind it was um, a, a leading producer had asked us to recreate the show to then package it up with a view of maybe um, publishing publishing the show as a script to then be touring internationally with other cast. So there's kind of a cavalier approach from an outside perspective, but... But still, I mean, that's, that's very terrifying. That's like going back into a relationship that you thought you'd moved away mm. from or trying to sort of find that spark. And the oh, festival it, was, it was highly cathartic. It was great for us. Was it? Oh, yeah. We had a ball. Yeah. I think mm. we, had, we did have a ball, but I think at the end of the two weeks, we were like, yep, see ya, thanks. <laughs> yeah. That's good. Glad our kids got to see it. We, you know, I've got to get back yeah. to my life. And and so and your lives and so Steve you well you I nearly killed my I nearly actually I nearly had like the worst accident in that reunion with the with the chairs. Was there only a chair in your eye? Yes, yeah. so the, those chairs. I'd be juggling three or four of these chairs, not juggling, chucking them up and down, and I would do these pratfalls. And one of them, the chair landed up, and the, the leg was there, and I just did this giant pratfall into the stick of the leg, and it went right there, not in my eye. But Which of course, it was a bit of blood, and there is a blood rule in comedy that if blood comes out, you have to leave the field immediately. Yes, you do. But there, I was walking around the stage with blood pouring out of my over my face, and Neil decided to stop the show, and then I went to hospital. So mm. we still had it. We still had it. So, and and your pratfalls were were, were legend. Uh, so I just I guess what, what I want to tap into is during the 1970s, as far as I'm concerned, and then the early 80s. Anything went, and here we are in you know the post-millennial world that we live in, where everybody is very cautious, very very <laughs> cautious. You know, we helicopter parent, we have insurance policies for everything. Our children won't climb trees until they've signed yeah. away their you know their legal rights and so forth. Uh, and, and I just I, I I wonder about that. And I made a joke tonight about the possibility that without without sort of fucked up Catholics, we won't have any good comedy in the future. Yeah. But there is Maybe that there's sens- less comedy Catholics around now. <laughs> there is that sensation. That was a, that was a really interesting field. It, it, it was untapped. It was unexploited, and you could do anything. And you did do everything that you mm. could in that framework. And I guess you paved the way for, for, for comedians now, but there are so many young people now that have that whole thing mapped out, whereas you were sort of bunnies in the headlights, I guess. So, you know, in retrospect, um, what, what do you feel about Australian comedy at the moment and, 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 and its situation in, you know, the, the world entertainment scene? Hmm. Well, I, I, um, I go to the comedy festival quite a bit. I'm a judge there every now and then, but I, I, um, I'm still amazed at, at the array of talent and you, have, you, you watch a lot of it on TV, which there wasn't back... In the in the 80s, I think it's. Um, no, Dave Taranto I've, really kind of you know discussed in great length the the, se- the thesis of what was happening to Australian comic comedy, and John Pinder was really the sort of godfather yeah, he of was so the, much that happened. Yeah, totally. <laughs> um, but I, I I do agree that um, uh, you know the, the the entire edge has gone from the comedy scene. Uh, there is no 
there is no edge there. There, there is no uh, threat. There, there's, there's no electricity. It's funny, which is fine, but it's, it's just not. I don't think it's needed. Perhaps it ju- it's just, it's just, just not the time. No, it's not the time for it. You know, we're all um, trying to pay a mortgage. That's quite depressing, don't you think? <laughs> Student loans as well. Uh, yeah. Yep. Yeah, I don't know what it was about back then, but um, I think people were trying to just burst out of the 70s and, and just um, invent their own um, amusement. You know, the, the, I think we were having more fun on stage than anybody watching us. <laughs> you know, there was nothing you else to do. You mentioned it before, there was that sense of um, striving for originality. You know, not just for us, but you could feel it throughout the entire community um, and in, in the performing community as well. Um, it's, this could be slightly surprising, but the idea of doing stand-up was thought of being really unoriginal. Oh, yeah. And if you were a stand-up on the circuit, it was like, well, well get it together. You know, think of something. Any, hardly any stand-ups. Know? No, yeah. every act had a funny hat or a suit, guitar, whatever. Uh, it was a menagerie. Or, or just did something totally bizarre. I remember Alan Pentland used to do a, uh, a strip on stage um, with, with a patter routine mm. as well. Um, and uh, you worked together with the, the Whittle family too at the time. Who Nothing has really come close to representing the work that they did then, I guess. No, they were brilliant. Yeah. Well, they yeah. used to come to Rusden and do shows that we would watch. So they were kind of inspirations as well. And, with and Steve Vizard as well. Yes, that's right. I mean, Circus Oz was this highly original comic thinking group that, that you know, just combined so many things. Again, Pinder was all involved with all of that Absolutely. as well. Absolutely. So we're looking at a bygone era. We're looking at a sort of a, a current milieu that is sort of referential and sort of just recreating the wheel all of the time. And yet there is some sort of stunning talent that's still mm. operating today. So we kind of can't disrespect the, the work that is yeah. still going on. It just keeps morphing. Um, and, and all right, well, look, let's wrap this up by talking about where are you both today? Neil, you're still treading the boards and working regularly in, in live arts and so forth. And, Steve, you've moved significantly into film production, which is another way of smashing your head against brick wall, but you've had some fantastic success. Um, so, Neil, where, where are you at the moment then? Uh, well, the Olympics led me on to um, doing very large-scale event at stadium theatre work. I directed the first, oh gosh, many, many things, like both working in theatres, um, working with comedy acts, um, but um, I directed the first um, Australian Outback Spectacular on the Gold Coast um, at Movie World. Um, um, that you know, for the last ten years, I've actually been the artistic director of the Victoria State School Spectacular, which is a which kind I, of, I've been to. I've seen one. It's a pretty interesting combination of all the things I find. It's a lot of children wrangling. Um, yeah, n- not to a- any large extent, really. It's it's like um, they are the the best of the best. I mean, it's not just about numbers there, but you know, it's about amazing skilled young people and um, I remember um, in the principal vocal cast a couple of years ago there were three kids already had recording contracts you know, and, and that's so, telling a huge narrative arc on a, on a very broad uh, spectrum so that 
uh, you, you get beyond just the parents who are pleased with their children having sort of participated, that there's actually a story being told as well. Yeah, no, yeah, I, it's I very much stadium theatre yeah, that we, we, we strive for. And most of us have come off Olympics or Commonwealth Games, ceremonies teams, um, the professionals that we work with. Our philosophy is very much um, that we, are, we don't see ourselves as teachers working with, with young people. We, we actually see ourselves as colleagues yeah. and that we're all learning from, from working together within that and um, yeah, so that there's a highly developed mutual respect you know, from between the artists. But huge numbers of people that you have to corral together and in a similar vein, Steve, as a producer of feature films and so on, that is a huge number of individuals that you have to get together to work collaboratively to create this, yeah. you know, this vision and this idea. And, and so what's, what is working... The Australian film industry is not an easy, not an easy space it's, to work uh, in. It's fucked. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah I, uh, well, when I came back, back I was write, writing scripts, I was going to direct something and, and then it, they all fell apart and then you know, my wife's going, you know, what's, what's happening, Steve? <laughs> Are you going to uh, do anything? And uh, I said, fuck it. Uh, I know, I'll be a producer, then I, I'll get lots of scripts. Because I was always, always, always had a filing cabinet and I always file things away. And I thought, well, you know, I know how to run a business. Um, so it just um, dived into the world of, of, um, of producing. It's a whole, you know, it's, a, it's another career. You have to learn at, a, at, a, at, a, at an elderly age uh, still. And it's, it's a vast, unknowable thing too. So, but having stage... Um, some stagecraft makes me very good at pitching a film. Yeah. Able to talk to people, I can work the room. Um, and, um, you know, you've got to like talk people into giving you seven or eight million dollars. So. And a lot of people don't understand the film industry. They figure, well, you've got a script, you've got some actors, why isn't it happening? They don't understand the seven years it takes to finesse and yeah. nuance that whole project. Um, but there was talk, and, and you know we're among friends here, so it doesn't matter if it isn't going ahead. But there was talk of a documentary about Los Tres Swing Barkas, which is where this conversation started with you and I. And so, where the hell is that now? <laughs> oh, it's in our roof, <laughs> <laughs> on on beta and one inches. <laughs> right. Yeah, never to be seen again. But it sh- no, no, it should happen again because there yep. was uh, th- there is so much raw footage available. There is so much of a story, and it actually sort of tells the historical arc of Australian comedy before it became commodified and 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 you know commercialised and so on. When it was actually just comedians who went, I don't know, let's give it a fucking yeah. go. Yeah. Um, no, I don't know where that's at. It's hard to, for us to make a. A documentary on ourselves. Exactly. Of course it is. And yet it's worthy, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. It's worthy. Yeah. Hey, listen, have I we got any questions from the, uh, the audience here tonight about uh, Los Trias? Has anyone seen a live performance? You may not have seen them. But most people are, were, uh, were changed. It was a little bit like going to see Damien de Everidge. People didn't come out the same. They were, they were really quite altered by your performance. We used to see a lot of people who would sit down and want to analyse us. And I, I remember really seeing possible. people doing this from the audience. It wasn't and worth going, it, was it? Oh, I don't know. And I thought, right, I'm going to get you. I and then after that. 10 minutes, I looked back at that person and they, were, uh, they be- had become a three-year-old child <laughs> laughing their heads off. Mm. So, and I thought, gotcha. 
Because you could say punk, but you could also say da-da, I guess. You could go back yeah. even yeah. further. There's yeah, a lot well, of Brecht, a lot of Brecht in yes. there too. And a lot of, I suppose, as fascist as they were, the, the Italian futurists yes. were, were a bit of an influence too. And Graham Kennedy. And a bit of Graham yeah. Kennedy. God the great love Graham him. Kennedy. All right, well, look, let's wrap this up with just a bit of an anecdote. Let's go populist and talk about what it was like to be on Hey Hey It's Saturday. That was 1984. Oh, we went well, on a number quite of years, a, quite actually. a few times. Yeah, a couple of goes. Uh, they actually, they were starting a segment on, this is when it was still on Saturday mornings, and, and Daryl and Ernie came along yeah. to see us somewhere and said, oh, we're starting this segment called Red Faces. And, <laughs> Would you be on it? We'll we'll pay you. Oh, rare. So uh, I think we were one of the first. You would have been one of the first and we only so to be paid. We, we pretended to be an amateur. Yeah, act, yeah. Which we were. We were pretty good Very at being good amateur. At. Yeah. Um, <laughs> but Daryl Summers, he he was the drummer in my when my sister got engaged and had a yeah. party in 1974. And never a very That's good my big drummer, story. was he? I know Daryl Summers. Oh, the parties. Backstage, <laughs> we never saw one. Yeah, no. but Daryl was always a, a big um, enthusiast, great. a and massive supporter. And he was always and, great. And Bert so. Newton as well became, uh, you know, big fans of the of what mm. we did and um, supportive. Mm. Sorry, no goss there <laughs> no. at all. What, what's the goss? Although, I yeah, mm. I don't mm. know. I mean, they sort of supported their their talent, and at the same time, they sort of. Um, I kind of berated them as well. Anyway, it was look. It was an. It was Were a, you working there too? <laughs> Heavens, no. I that, was just at home watching it on the telly. Oh. Neil, I really was. You're just thinking of Red Simons all the time now. I su- I suppose so. We might we, look. Who knows? Maybe we'll lure him to the Newport Comedy Room. Look, folks. Thank you so much for sticking around for our podcast this evening. Will you please give a big round of applause to Neil Gladwin and Steve Keeney, Lost Trees Ring Barkers, the legends that they were. I want to see the documentary. I would like to see that. Thank you so much for coming along to a television podcast. The Q, the Q, the Q. Q. Testicles. One, two, three. (coughs) See, I do remember a joke.